Welcome at How to Buy Design, the monthly meetup organized by Blue City Lab, where we search for answers on how to buy design with our international community of pioneers. We dive into our oceans, explore the organisms in the soil, look at human and non-human organisms, from the Netherlands to Central Asia. Let's get started. So, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to this 21st episode of How to Biodesign. I believe there's pioneers from all over the world joining us here. We are here in Blue City in Rotterdam. This is the third year of Biodesign series and it's really evolved to become a platform for uh, pioneers to interact and meet together and also talk about all of the new and evolving topics around biodesign and other regenerative methods. Today, I'll just introduce myself. My name is Natasha Holst. Um, as I said, first time here hosting this meeting, but I've been working on these topics for the last 20 years, mainly between ecology and economy, and done a lot of work in the food systems, fiber systems, and around land use. Uh, at the moment, I work for the Biomimicry Institute and the Schumacher Center for New Economics. In these past 20 years, I think some of the things that have really stuck with me have, and well, a lot of the things that I've learned really, starting off in sustainability and then moving on. Um, a lot of the things, because originally I read a book about permaculture that I found quite inspiring, but I later found out that after all of these years of working on sustainability, that a lot of things that I read when I was about 18 in that book about permaculture actually already had a lot of the answers to the things that we uh, need to do to create a regenerative society and economy. I'm joined here today by, with two people who have really been able to embrace this regenerative mindset towards design and we're going to be talking today about what does this really mean? Um, how do you design in a, with nature instead of against it? Um, in a place-based fashion, by originally, um, and considering the future generations and non-humans. I think we'll be not just be talking about permaculture design, but also because a lot of people talking about the, the breadth of permaculture design, because uh, a lot of people just mainly see it as a method of agriculture. But it's, of course, a lot more than that. It also looks at the social interaction between humans and how we fit within the ecological system. And it's also very much a, a one of the pillars and has influenced a lot of thinking around circular economy, biomimicry, ecological design. So uh, we're going to be looking at permaculture within the broader design and also within the broader context and how it kind of links together with these different schools of thought, especially with these two practitioners that we have here today who've been working also on it for many years. And we'll be looking at, you know, how does this kind of fit all together in, in systems thinking around land, ecosystems, politics, and what role can biodesign play within all of this? So, with no further ado, I want to introduce you quickly to Daniel Christian Wall, who's going to be, who's with us from Mallorca. He originally trained as a biologist and holds a degree in biology, holistic science, and a, a PhD in natural design. 
And he's also author of one of my favorite books and that taught me a lot, Designing Regenerative Cultures. I really recommend it. We're also joined with uh, today from the other side of Europe, uh, in Scotland, Ellie Banwell, who is a market gardener, uh, but also a scientist. She has a PhD in chemistry. And one of my colleagues, uh, close colleagues, uh, at the Biomimicry Institute, where we work on the design for decomposition around fashion and decomposition. And she's a biomimetic systems designer. So first of all, let's move over to Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, and great to have you I, I here. I want to ask whether you know John Ennis and his fiber work in Scotland, but we can talk about that some other time. Oh, yeah, maybe later, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wonderful to be on, on the show and great to find out about the show because I just saw all the interesting episodes that have gone before this one and the ones that are coming after, so I'm looking to, forward to dipping into those as well. So, um, Daniel, could you just give us quickly... Uh, some more information about who you are and what you work on and what's your future perspective and maybe share some of the projects and examples that you work on. Well, thanks for the invitation and you've already given the kind of standard answer to who are you. Like, yeah, I've got a degree in biology, I've got a master's in holistic science, I wrote a PhD on design for human and planetary health at Duncan and Jordanson School of Art and Design in Dundee in 2006. Um, I co-founded Biomimicry Iberia in 2012 with Theresa Millard and a group of people probably spent about 30 years um, on that journey of trying to understand uh, life as a planetary process, li how life does what life does and how we can fit back into that pattern. And so another way of saying, who am I? You can say I'm, I'm, I'm an expression of life as a planetary process capable a regenerative rather than a degenerative impact on the environment I live in. And I think all human beings have that capability. I think we wouldn't be here as a species if we hadn't through the long part of the evolutionary journey of Homo sapiens, bit of an arrogant name, Albeit, um, had the ability to have a regenerative, healing, nurturing, abundance-generating influence on the ecosystems that we inhabited. And even more importantly, all over the world, all indigenous cultures still hold the knowledge of how to live in place in that way. So when I write about regenerative cultures, I don't write about some sort of utopian ideal of the future. I'm writing about the biodesign pattern that is our species inheritance. We are indigenous to life, and life as a planetary process has created, as Janine likes to say, created conditions conducive to life for 3.8 billion years. We have taken a rather curious and rather long detour as a species and happened to reference our own story within the time frame of that detour. So we don't we, we talk about history, which is exactly the five to 8,000 years of agriculture and the story of separation culture from nature through more and more an attitude of power over of this land belongs to us and less and less the ancient indigenous understanding that we're nothing but expressions of life as a planetary process. We are nature. We are living one species expressions capable of 
affecting the ecosystems we live in in ways that they're actually more abundant and more diverse, more resilient, more vital. And like whether you, you look at the Amazon rainforest and what um, we now know that the, the original inhabitants of, of that rainforest shaped the diversity of that forest. The same, the Pacific Northwest forest is shaped by indigenous burning practices. And, and so for me, what do I work on? I work for 20 years and increasingly for the last 10 years um, on trying to inspire particularly people like people listening to this podcast who are already on the path of trying to learn from nature to actually watch out that there's a linguistic track there that makes that still others nature as if biodesign, we need learn from biology as other rather than to say, okay, we, we are, if, if we truly attune to living systems again, we actually have the capacity to heal them because we're part of them. And um, so, yeah, well, sh sh what should I say about my future perspective? If we don't manage to do this reintegration of coming home to place of, and this is the context of the circular economy um, and, and biodesign, in order to refit the human impact or the human presence on Earth into the biosphere, we need to redesign our entire impact on the planet within the lifetime of the generations alive today. And we can't do so by abstracting planetary problems like climate change and trying to solve them and then scaling up the, those solutions and implementing them everywhere in the same way. We actually do it, have to do it like life does, which is we have to come out of the biocultural uniqueness of each ecosystem, each place, each culture, and manifest that place's potential. So the pathway through the eye of the needle of what's coming at us with climate change and economic collapses and all of those kind of things that, that are already on the wall um, is a re-regionalization of production and consumption wedded with ecosystems restoration all over the planet, waterways, forests, soils, everywhere. And through that pathway, we can create, we can reinvent capitalism as a, as a nested system where it's more about regenerative bioregionals, these circular economies that are nested in global networks. And um, all of this is very related to all the, the specific stories that this podcast tells, but we need to integrate them systemically. And, and so, so my, my work is really centered around when Janine Benius speaks about the three levels of biomimicry. You, you copy nature's form, you copy nature's process, or you copy systems. You learn from systemic. Um, copy might be the wrong word because, again, it, see how language can other nature? I've just done it myself. Uh, um, learning from natural system as participants in that system, that's that's really what we need to do. And, and that's about integrating all these met new methods of production that this podcast showcases in this vision of a circular biomaterials-based economy at a regional scale that has the regeneration of local ecosystem as its main goal and, and basically runs on re regionally generated renewable energy that is decentralized and community-owned. Um, because all of this is one part. We can't just spend our life in the silo of innovating around mushrooms. We have to see how that fits 
into that larger system. And that's what I work on. And I'll shut up so we can hear more about permaculture, which is one. And then just briefly, the, what you were saying earlier to the and just as a, as a bridge over um, to Ellie, permaculture and David Holmgren's work and, and Bill Mollison's work was basically a abstraction in Western scientific language of the core principles of Aborigine uh, um, culture living in place over 40, possibly 100,000 years in Australia. And it's not an appropriation, not a stealing of indigenous knowledge. It's, it's, a, it's an attempt to translate the knowledge that people who still saw themselves as nature and still see themselves as nature have transmitted through generations and millennia in order to give us a message of how to live in right relationship. And um, over to Ellie. No, 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 Daniel, we still have questions, but also, actually, I think we still have quite a bit of time. So that's, uh, even though uh, I think you've outdone yourself because uh, we still have 10 minutes so before we have to move on to Ellie. So I'll take that time to, to ask you a few more questions. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more, because I think, you know, the problem sometimes with thinking in systems and how do we start? Where do we start? And how, how do we start? It can be so daunting sometimes because I think, as, as you rightly said, I mean, we often have quite a reductionist view of how to go about these things. And that's also how most people have been trained uh, at universities and so on. But so how do we start doing things? Because, of course, that's, that's important. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your project in, in Mallorca. I personally, after 25, 30 years in this field of bioinspiration and sustainability and, and regeneration, I think that the way to get a handle on complexity is first to acknowledge it, meaning we have to be much more humble. We have to accept that the systems we participate in are complex and dynamics, they're nested. Everything we do is, affects everything else and it's the causality isn't linear, it's circular. So the whole notion of science to be to better predict and control outcomes is just forget about it. We have to dance with the system and learn learn to work with them in a much more responsive way. And in order to integrate the diversity of, of things that we now need to integrate to give a an answer that is complex enough to face the complexity of the problems we're we're facing now, we have to create a permeable boundary around our conversation, and that's the bioregion. We have to refit human patterns at a scale that is actually a biophysical, real pattern, not a sociopolitical drawn boundary. Here's where Scotland begins and where England starts. It's silly. Like we need, we need, we need to really look at how river systems, how ecosystems dictate the possibilities, the potential of, of a place. And that's another big flip that when we talk about, to some extent, putting the word regenerative and design together can really be misleading because so many people, when they think of design, think of design as creating ultimately some form of object, some form of deliverable, uh, deliverable some form of outcome. And to work regeneratively isn't about the, the green city you create, the eco-activated product you create or whatever, it's about 
doing that, which is important and valuable work, but doing it in a way that the capacity of everybody in the team, of everybody the company touches, and of everybody the project touches, is amplified, the capacity to live in place over a long period of time, understand what regeneration is, work regeneratively. So it's the, the, the deliverable doesn't become the product, the deliverable becomes the capability of the system to see itself, the system to work and collaborate with each other, the system to understand in humbleness the story of place. How does what we are trying to do fit into the context of this unique ecosystem and its unique culture? And, and so then it, it becomes an invitation for every entrepreneur to work in ecosystems of regenerators in the wider region and find support in in building this deeper relationship with place. It's a, it's a role of universities to turn the the beauty of science and all the different different disciplines and what they have to offer to the specificity of the region and share that knowledge with the inhabitants of the region so we actually know our places again. We're, we're illiterate about the regions we live in in many cases. What do you mean by that? I mean, I, I've read the book, so I, I know a little bit more, but... Who knows? Name three migratory birds and when they arrive and when they leave in your area. Oops. Uh, name three native birds. Name, name, name three species that the people 200 years ago in that place had as their main staple for, for their diet. <laughs> we have no idea. Most of us, uh, even when you train as a biologist or an ecologist, you can live your life having no idea of that. And and that's biodesign. And maybe, yeah, so uh, how did you go about it in Mallorca? When, I mean, where you've lived for quite a few years now. How did you get to know the place? I, I moved to Mallorca because I spent 10 years focused on eco-villages and transition towns. And the, I thought that the system scale of integrating design for sustainability or regenerative design was was the community so from I, I wrote i started a master's course in de designing sustainable communities with harriet watt university and worked in that field for a long time until i realized that even the community scale which is the scale where a lot of the human face daily interaction happens isn't big enough to create these regenerative systems it has to fit at the largest level into the regional scale, which also means you then can't create intentional communities of people that are like-minded. You have to actually work with the diversity of opinions in the region and the diversity of social structure and, and potential and all of that. And, and it becomes complex. And I moved to Mallorca partially because being an island, at least the conversation of where does this bioregion end and where does it start was easier to handle. And because of its location, it it offered a lot because of the, the, the food plant biodiversity, um, a half a million city in a million roughly um, people island, uh, the size of it, the geographic location of it, the, the meaning that working on transformation of this place would have to other bioregions in the Mediterranean basin. But as soon as you engage with the specificity, you also understand the audacity of even the idea of trying to work 
at that scale? Like, what does bioregional regeneration actually mean? And the, one of the undervalued roles in that process is the role of the weaver, the role that weaves different initiatives in a region that work on biodesign, on social integration, on um, e ecological or regenerative agriculture, on food sovereignty, on water sovereignty. And they're all so in their silos of these important jobs that they don't see that they're actually part of a living network of regenerative culture in that place trying to live regeneratively because it comes out of us. We're part of life. It lives through us. We just need to get out of the way and recognize it. And systems theory informs us that if you want to influence positive emergence in a complex dynamic system, it's, it's about connecting who does who talks to who, who's aware of who and what is the quality of information and the quality of the connections between these people. And, and that's where I'm sort of doing my intervention here on, on Mallorca. I just talk to people. I do projects with some people where they might fail, but in the work with that project, we've, we've learned a new way of thinking about things. And then people go on and use that way of thinking in their projects. Or I do education um, and, and I'm trying to weave existing projects into a larger narrative that isn't a narrative of please give me some money so I can save the Mediterranean Sea, but is more complex of saying we're doing our part to create a diverse regenerative economy here in the Balearic Islands and make this an example of people living in place in a way that the place can flourish and the people can flourish. That's the kind of thing I, I, I try to work on, but but it's hard, hard work, and you, it's cathedral building work. You, you have to let go of um, guaranteed positive outcomes. I just got a question from Ninka as well. She said, how do you finance these integrated projects? I mean, they're often quite difficult for funders and others to, to grasp. <laughs> you get deeply frustrated not being able to make a living with it for about 10 years and, and if you keep banging your head against the wall for long enough suddenly it all begins to fall into place writing a book helps and that's just yeah. my personal story but um, no I mean it's not easy um, I don't want to um, like say the, everybody will immediately fund you and, and, and all that but um I think you need to create them yourselves. Like for one, one example, you wanted some project, project examples. It's, it's kind of interesting very briefly because it, it shows how a failed project can have an amazing impact. Um, when we started Biomimicry Iberia as a network, Theresa Miller put me in touch with the innovation manager of um, Ecover, the Belgian detergent company. And we, had this conversation around what would systemic biomimicry look like as a, as a project for Ecover. And we decided that looking at the island and the bio waste streams of the island, the, the almond shells, and the forestry waste and organic municipal waste and agricultural waste, can we extract the chemical elements, the, the, the raw materials that we can then make detergents, floor soaps, um, washing up liquid, hand soaps, um, towel um, washing powder. Um, and in that process, we, we seeded a way of thinking both in the organization, looking at circular regenerative economy with biomaterials, because we didn't get 
talk about Ecoverse building a factory. We worked with local chemical companies and local bottling companies to explore what it would look like to create prototypes of that and whether they could actually bottle them. And then we, we had meetings to, to pull it. And then we'd, we'd only created two pilot products, a floor soap and a hand soap with fragrance of almond oil and, and lemon peel. And But while then... Ecoware merged with Method and the attention went elsewhere and the funding stopped. While we were here, we really, like while we were doing this here, we were inspiring, we were bringing people together. People have started a whole new company inspired from thoughts that they had while they were working on this project. And so, and even like we called it a Mallorca Glocal. It was a project that was through Forum for the Future um, in the end. And um, that that term "glocal" has really, I I didn't see it before that that much, but it it really traveled very far, far um, because it speaks to this: how can a company be global? How can you transform a global company that currently sells products in forty countries into a company that is a international collaborative networks of long-term commitments to bioregional regeneration in a place? So. Ultimately, the company becomes from one global monolith into a network of much more locally attuned and locally employed networks. But they are enabled because they know that they have a global network behind them. That's systemic biodesign for companies. I think, you know, we've definitely seen that, you know, in this past two years, the supply chain issues, um, you know, that this global system isn't working. We already knew that, but now we're actually seeing them breaking down as well. So hopefully that will also lead to more global business. It is already. I've had many conversations with different companies that that are, the, the notion of decentralized manufacturing isn't some sort of idealist greeny thing anymore. It's it's uh, companies are pretty serious about it. And and big, but even combine that with the food sector understanding um, how severe disruptions will not be in ten years time, but are already today. Um, they they're beginning to to like it goes as small as a company who relies on having wheat for their cookie going, hmm, maybe we should start baking things with a more diverse ingredients list because what happens if we can't get wheat? We don't have a cookie company anymore. Eh? Um, so, and, and that's a, yeah, that, that's an invitation to diversify supply chains from supply chains into supply ecosystems. But it only becomes economically viable if you share ownership, if you create commons, if you hold land in commons trusts if you share ownership through cooperative ownership structures and then and, and so it's it's a it's a redesign of, of our economic system that, that also is needed if if we don't want to run this against the wall as we're doing right now absolutely and if we start once we start to move away from petrochemicals um oil-based products plastics and so on We'll also need to have a lot more, um, yeah, biocompatible products that are actually grown. So we'd really need to look at the way in which we treat our soils as well. Um, well, thanks a lot, and that's also a bridge to move over to Ellie. Um, thanks a lot, Daniel. We'll, we'll talk more with Daniel after Ellie's presentation. 
great that you're here with us, and I think it really fits very well with Daniel's presentation just now and a lot of the things we do together as well at the Biomimicry Institute around fashion supply chains or ecosystems. And I've been really inspired by your work, and, uh, and, and you're such a great combination of things, an actual farmer, gardener, and scientist, chemist, and also a biomimic systems designer. So please tell us a bit more about yourself. Well, yes, and thank you also for inviting me. It's very nice to be here. Thank you to Daniel for such a great uh, overview of the landscape um, because he's really set me up perfectly to talk about my, my social enterprise and the work that I'm doing, which is really great. In one sentence, what I do is learn from natural systems to integrate food production with the local ecosystem. Natasha asked Daniel, where do we start? And that is exactly the problem that I am trying to solve. If we want to grow food globally, great term, I love it. I'd never come across it before. It's a really good way of putting it. Um, we need new skills for how to grow that food and also how to market it and how to sell it. And we need a huge cultural shift away from the growing food, buying food from the supermarket and the industrial monocultures of, of food that we are all used to eating. Uh, and so my business, which is called Scrumptious Garden, is working to solve that problem. Uh, so I am a biochemist who we trained as a designer and then got interested in biomimicry and Buddhism. And the first two were all about solving problems. And what the second two have in common is the concept of interconnectedness. Again, I want to agree again with some of what Daniel said earlier about how being a scientist is a very useful skill to have. And I really do wish more people had the training and the ability to weigh evidence that that training gives you. But it also does train a particular way of thinking. It's all about control. It's all about minimizing, minimizing variables to understand how things are interacting. And that's fine when the system you're trying to understand is simple, but it's actually a really poor set of cognitive tools for thinking about complexity and thinking holistically about whole systems. And it's arrogant. And I have to hold my hands up. You know, when I was younger and less wise, I absolutely believed that science was the only way to truly understand the world around us. Um, and thankfully, as I have grown up and grown away from lab-based research, I've come to see the scientific method with a more rounded perspective and to recognize how over-reliance on scientific and technological solutions keeps on getting humanity into trouble. And again, just to reiterate what Daniel and Natasha were talking about, this is a rich Western and Western-inspired cultural mess. It's not a mistake that indigenous cultures are making to the same degree that we keep doing. And I think learning from the people who have not made those same mistakes is not the same as cultural appropriation. There is some really important wisdom and knowledge that we would do well to recognize and learn from. So I started out as a scientist and as my career progressed and as I've got older, the various global crises have become increasingly pressing. And of course, climate change is one. And roughly through retraining from a scientist to, to become a designer, I realized that I just couldn't justify a career that wasn't actively working to reverse global warming. Um, I, I just, I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this right now or watching this right now feel the same. Um, in the world we live in today, honestly, how can we do anything else? Uh, and again, reiterating Daniel again, another 
huge threat facing us that really isn't getting anything like the airtime it should be, oh, sorry, <laughs> is the imminent collapse of the globalised food system. And I suspect the reason we aren't talking about it more is that it is too big and too scary to even look at. And if climate change is an existential threat that we need to deal with now or face catastrophe in 30 years, food security is the barrel of the gun that we are staring down today. Except we aren't. We're looking anywhere except at that problem. And so Scrumptious Garden, my tiny market garden on a south-facing slope on the mountain Ben Laws in the Scottish Highlands overlooking Loch Tay, is my attempt to do something to solve that problem. And the weather is harsh, the growing season is short, but the challenges are worth it for the views that are different every single day and sometimes change from minute to minute. And Scrumptious Garden is a social enterprise, because I'm going to say it again, I agree with Daniel. It's, it's, we have to change the way we interact in communities as well as just the businesses and the techniques and the processes. And our mission is to provide accessible, good quality, nutritious and delicious food in a way that works for people and the planet. And in practice, that means creating biodiverse gardens that welcome wildlife whilst paying people a living wage to grow food that we sell for a price that competes with supermarkets. And if you're paying attention, your response should be, that is impossible. You're right, it is. Um, so there are two experiences that were particularly formative in my decision to start Scrumptious Garden. Uh, the first happened not long after the earthquake and tsunami in Japan in 2011. I happened to be living in Tokyo at the time, and after the earthquake, I spent some time helping with the cleanup. And after 18 months or so, a lot of the cleanup was complete and people shifted towards rebuilding their community. And I spent some time volunteering with a charity set up by one young man to grow food in the destroyed region to create jobs for people and also give them access to fresh food again. He had no farming experience and he was relying on the government and ministry advisors who of course recommended all the usual pesticides and fertilizers. Now there is one particular grub in Japan that eats onion seedlings. It snips the seedlings off at ground level and leaves the leaves just lying on the surface and what's particularly pernicious about it is they travel in straight lines. So if they have lined up correctly on a crop, they'll just go down the entire row, snipping each plant off one by one, and they can destroy a crop overnight. And our job as volunteers was to find the point in a row where the last plant had died and one was the next one was still alive and root through the ground looking for a grub the size and colour of a rice grain and squish it. Now, Spraying pesticides is filthy work, it is not healthy and it's not safe, but after one morning literally grubbing in the soil, I will never criticise the farmers who feel they have no choice but to resort to them. It's not a choice I will make, and Scrumptious Garden grows according to organic principles, but I will not criticise the people who feel they don't have an option. And what I see as my job is to come up with that alternative so that the people who currently have no choice can change the way they're growing. And the other thing that that experience absolutely taught me is that I will never grow in monocultures and I will certainly never grow in straight lines. And that means that I can't mechanise. 
And so everything we do in Scrumptious Garden, or almost everything we do in Scrumptious Garden, we do by hand. I'm also a designer, and that means aesthetics matter to me. And although it's still very early days, my goal is also to create a beautiful garden for people to visit and explore, as well as one that produces food. And to that end, we are using hexagonal beds arranged like honeycomb, and we plant mixtures of annuals and perennials, flowers and vegetables in layers inspired by permaculture principles. And I love the hex bed arrangement because although they are just as space efficient as rows, they mean I can get from anywhere in my garden to anywhere else because the paths go all over uh, and I don't ever have to step over the beds and I don't ever have to go the long way round to get from one place to another. But of course, we're also encouraging biodiversity, not just of the plants, but of other species. And whenever we have a problem with pests, and of course, we do have problems with pests, the garden is established only for three years on old sheep grazing land. So it's poor condition. It's in poor condition. Um, but whenever there is a problem with a pest, we keep in mind that pest pressure can be reduced by adding complexity. Uh, and an example of that might be we currently have a problem with field voles and they undermine the root system of the plants. They don't kill the plant outright, but with a tunnel under its root system instead of soil, the productivity is dramatically reduced. So last summer, we installed a barn owl box in our shed, and I'm absolutely delighted that the day before yesterday, for the first time in four years, a barn owl was spotted flying over our field. So I'm really hopeful that very, very soon we'll have barn owls resident in our barn owl box and our vole problem might become less severe. And that's just one example of relatively quick and easy changes that can be made to create niches for wildlife in our growing and living spaces if we just let go of this idea that we are in constant competition with nature. My second formative experience occurred not long after I returned from Japan um, when I had finished retraining as a designer. And I was visiting the office of a well-known global design firm that originated in Silicon Valley. And like all of these companies, they want their staff to enjoy being in the office. And so there were generous supplies of sweets, muffins, and the obligatory corporate fruit bowl. I do not need to describe this fruit bowl to you because you all have a clear picture of it in your mind already. I will describe it anyway, even though I don't need to. It had one large orange, three shiny apples, a bunch of gray green bananas, and some pears that you could use to hammer a nail in. And I was standing by the bowl, chatting with one of my colleagues, when he took a pear out of the bowl, snapped it in half, and crunched into it like an apple. And the person next to me asked him in some surprise whether he was enjoying the pear. Was it any good? And he said yes, and that he thought snapping pears in half was the best way to enjoy them. Now, I should note at this point that I do have quite strong opinions on supermarket pears. I think they're horrible. They usually go unripe and rotten. They go from unripe to rotten without passing through edible. And if you are lucky enough to catch one just at the right moment, they don't taste of anything. I've already mentioned, oh, sorry, I haven't actually already mentioned, but I wasn't actually interested in horticulture until I created Scrumptious Garden. But I was lucky in that my granddad and my mum were very interested, even obsessed in hort by horticulture and were very keen gardeners. And I may not have grown my own fruit and vegetables until 2019, but we did have an old pear tree in the garden when I was growing up. And I do know what a pear ripened on the tree and plucked and eaten warm from the sun actually tastes like and how hard it is to eat one with dignity 
because of all of the juice running down your wrist and chin. And as I watched my colleague gnawing away at his grainy green corporate offering, it hit me that he had almost certainly never had that experience. And worryingly, our familiarity with locally produced fresh, fresh produce has declined, declined to such a degree that nowadays, I don't think most people have been lucky enough to have that experience. A whole generation has grown up that the fruit and vegetables in supermarkets taste the way they are supposed to, instead of the bland and tasteless limited range selected for transportability that they really are. And that makes me very angry, <laughs> if I'm honest. So at Scrumptious Garden, we talk about fruit so good you'll choose it over chocolate. Because standing in that hospitality suite, I realised that of course people will choose muffins over the rubbish in that fruit bowl. So would I. But if I can find a way to get real, fresh, nutritious, good quality food into people's hands, they will make good choices. And after all, I would definitely choose a pair from my childhood over the lab-made food-like substances that are increasingly all that's on offer. What I'm trying to do is impossible. So we need to talk about business models. Scrumptious Gardens business model is designed around many small gardens established on underutilized urban land. Derelict land tends to be concentrated in areas of multiple deprivation. So by focusing there, we can grow food and create jobs right in the heart of the communities that need them most. And by thinking about food meters instead of food miles, we can grow the untransportables that taste so good like the tree ripened squidgy pears of my childhood. All of that said, establishing a distributed, and I'm local, now I know it, I'm going to use it a lot, distributed business in a city on difficult and sometimes contaminated land with little or no funding, because again, agreeing with Daniel, it is a graft and there isn't any funding until you've proven it and proving it, proving it takes, takes money. And if you don't have it, you just have to, you just have to find a way. Doing all of that on derelict land in cities turned out to be a heavy lift. And that is British understatement. It turned out to be impossible. So that prompted the move to the Highlands, where I'm lucky enough to have a nice benign south-facing climate, microclimate, south-facing slope, and a very, very supportive local community. And from this location, I can figure out how to grow and sell on our little plot with a view to translating that business to an urban setting once we have a model that works. All of which brings me back to the looming spectre of collapsing, collapsing global food systems and the impossibility of producing food socially envir and environmentally responsibly at a price point that the people who need it can most afford, who need it most can afford. And the hard truth is that to get our food on, people plate, on people's plates, we need to compete on price with the supermarkets. And those prices are only possible by exploiting people and the environment. So we need to come up with another way to make the company profitable because frankly, growing food ain't it. What we have found is that there is a market for designing the type of garden we have developed. I don't know what to call it yet. We've considered complexiculture or forage gardening. And although I don't like either of those terms particularly, um, what it does, people seem to like. Um, and by combining aesthetically pleasing spaces that welcome wildlife with food production and by using permaculture and other growing methods to create welcoming and beautiful gardens packed full of edible plants, we've stumbled on a product that people are asking us for. Um, we've designed one garden for one hotel. Um, this is a very tourist heavy economy. And so there are quite a lot of hotels around. 
and we've just started working with a second. And I tend to think you're onto something if people start asking you for a service before you've even decided to offer it. Um, and yeah, so just to sum up, just to finish up, uh, and again, to reiterate, reiterate what Daniel said, COVID is leading to shortages of all sorts of unexpected things. Um, I don't know how bad it is in other countries, because of course, here in the UK, we have Brexit as well as COVID to contend with. Um, and honestly, things are not looking great. Um, but it sounds as though it's a problem everywhere. And so the scrumptious garden business model is designed to take over from the status quo when, not if, it stops working. Oh, yes. And Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Ellie. That was, that was really great and uh, really took us on your journey. You know, one of the things that you said to me, not now, but a while back, but it really fits with this, was said, you know, my market garden isn't really uh, profitable at the moment. And that's also what you mentioned, like we're trying to sell it at prices that people can afford. And uh, you said, so I need to do something to subsidize my garden. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound right. And then you, but then you answered, uh, what did you say then that, uh, yeah, you said to me, well, actually, all food is subsidized, is heavily subsidized. So it, yeah. it's not very strange to do it that way. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I think this is something that a lot of regenerative farmers or others, actually people who work in this field are running into. Absolutely. Uh, and it is, I, I wrestle with it a lot because, and I will come back to answer your question, but one of the things I wrestle with is if I subsidize my produce to keep the price affordable, I am, I am unfairly competing with the regenerative market gardeners are trying to sell for profit, and it's a, it's a, I don't know the, I don't know the solution. I don't know the answer to that problem. But fundamentally, if a price is too good to be true, it has to be based on exploitation. That is true of clothes, of electronics, and it's true of food. And so, if I'm subsidising my production with garden design. I, I don't see that I have much of a choice at the moment if I'm going to demonstrate that the method works to grow. Petition are subsidizing their growing by exploiting soil and exploiting exploiting wildlife and exploiting their, their staff members, their, their workers. Well, I think, I mean, like you mentioned, and I, I think two of the things we spoke of uh, also with Daniel, and maybe we should also open it up to Daniel because we have about 10 minutes now. I think, um, you know, we've talked about embracing complexity. We talked about global production and supply ecosystems. I think those three terms are definitely something that, you know, a key uh, in, in what we're trying to achieve here. So maybe let's get Daniel involved now as well. And I, I think it's so great how those two presentations actually really fit together so well. I mean, Daniel, maybe you can react a little bit to Ellie's presentation as well. Wonderful work. And um, also congratulations of taking that journey from, from being a PhD chemist to being a market gardener. That sounds like a healthy choice. I think it's central to widen the food system conversation because I, what I've, I've noticed is that right now, just within the UN process, for example, I've been invited by UNITA, UNEP, and UNDP into large international conversations about the new food system, precisely because 
what Ellie was saying, people see the writing on the wall of what's collapsing around us right now and the impact of it. Um, but the conversation is about the food system. <laughs> the conversation is not about how the food system and the health system are deeply interlinked, how the education system, the food system, and the health system are deeply interlinked, uh, how water use and the food system cannot be separated, how energy use and water use cannot be separated. That's why all these wonderful people who say, I'm an entrepreneur, I want to get my hands in and start a company, need to be supported and that also means resourced in having the opportunity to see how does what I'm doing, which is important, fit into all the other things that are happening in the region. Otherwise, we very quickly get the guy who's trying to grow a local fiber economy and the guy who's trying to grow a local food economy starting to feel like they have to compete. And that's not bi systemic biomimicry. Competition doesn't work in ecosystems. Cooperation is the key to ecosystems. Symbiosis is the key to life. You, you, somebody got it wrong in the biology class if they told you that it's all about competition. Uh, read it up. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, one of the things that, of course, you've also been working on is the idea of one of the missing links. And you didn't really talk about that in your presentation, but one of the missing links in the circular economy is, is, is actually the decomposition part of it. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that because, I mean, that also fits so well into the whole idea that it's maybe also a bit of a blind spot. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so this is something I started thinking about uh, oh, seven or eight, nine years ago now, uh, that we have this idea that recycling is only worth doing and is only working if we are recycling at a very high level and maintaining and holding on to the embodied energy in products and what that means is things like design for disassembly where you take a mobile phone apart and reuse all of the components or uh, attempts to recycle plastics specifically things like pet and your plastic drinks bottles back into plastic drinks bottles or maybe polyester clothing, which for those that don't know is the same thing. This is the same material as your plastic drinks bottle. And it turns out that that is very difficult to do. Uh, it, and it tends to be extremely uneconomic. And if you turn to, the, turn to nature, which everyone currently on this call likes to do, that is not what nature does. A cow does not eat grass and then sprout leaves from in the back of its neck and start photosynthesizing. Nature does not, as a rule, recycle things at the same level. It consumes them. It breaks them down into small component building blocks. And then it uses the energy and those small nutrient building blocks to build the thing that it needs to survive. A cow doesn't need to produce grass. It needs to produce cow. And we so you know we have identified that that is a huge part of our thinking about recycling and thinking about resource flows that is missing from the conversation and if you start thinking about embracing decomposition and embracing materials breakdown you immediately discover that actually there are some technologies out there that can already do this 
that already exist. There aren't very many and there aren't enough, but there are some and they are being ignored and they aren't being funded very well because we tend to think of them as failures. And the other thing that nature does is it has vast interconnected networks of resource flows. It doesn't turn cow into grass, into cow, into grass, into cow, into grass. It turns grass into cow, into cow poo, into dung beetle, into earthworm, into micro mycorrhizal fungi, you know, it, it vastly complicated networks into carbon dioxide that goes all the way across the world and turns into a baobab tree. You know, or vastly interconnected networks of resources that are all flowing between each other. And we need to start thinking about our materials flows in those ways. And instead of thinking about PET turns into PET, PET, plastic, polyester, turns into polyester, we need to think what can we digest polyester to that is a benign, biocompatible nutrient, and we have that technology, we can do that, but what are those nutrients useful for outside of plastics? <laughs> I'm getting excited here. Let's get nerdy. <laughs> I mean, what you're speaking to my colleague at the International Futures Forum, Ian Page, who used to be a research chemist for Hewlett Packard and happened to be in the room in the 1980s when they just invented the dot matrix printer, when somebody said, we could print in three dimensions with this. Um, just to give you the context of who's doing this research, when he retired 15 years ago, he got obsessed with working his way through the entire periodic table and looking at the true depletion curves of these elements. And of course, there are few little problems like phosphorus, but if we keep them out, all of them end up running out at timescales where if we are now challenging ourselves to redesign our industrial system, we better do it for 5,000 or 50,000 years and not for 200 years. 200 years might seem a long time for an economic decision. It's a very stupid ecological decision. And basically his conclusion to make it short, and Janine Benyus has come up with the same conclusion through the biomimicry route, is that life builds with four elements, chon, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen. They are freely cycled within nature. And ultimately, if you conceptually think about it, we will have to create a material culture that somehow is based out of those four elements in ways that we can melt down all products to become that green goo of those four elements and then make all products out of that again. Here's a challenge for designers. <laughs> and you're right, there are lots of technologies that are beginning to make this possible. And, and Ian has spent 14 years of retirement <laughs> every day researching this, but doesn't really share the results, results yet. But um, that's, that's the challenge we're, we're, we're faced. That we, and, and with regard to the circular economy, another kind of slightly geeky point that in this forum is probably a good one, um, is we have to pay attention that there's an evolution of the idea of circular economy. And the first 
sort of modern scientific researcher people that talked about it were the industrial ecologists. And then it got rebranded by William McDonough and Michael Browngard as Cradle to Cradle. And then it got rebranded again as the circular economy by the Alan MacArthur Foundation. And in each of these rebranding steps, important new target audiences were explored and important impact was achieved. And it was wonderful work, applaud to both of Cradle to Cradle and Circular Economy. But they lost, in order to be able to speak to those audience, they piped down on one of the key insights of the industrial ecologists is the closer the loop, the more effective the design. Creating circular economies where you ship aluminum from all over Europe to Germany to melt it down and then ship it all over to make cans again, just like you were saying, that's not making any sense. And you mentioned the mushrooms. So for those of you listening, some of them I know work in mushrooms. We we have we have, as my friend Paul Stamets likes to say, we've we live in a microfo microphobic culture. And if we want to talk decomposing. We need to talk, mention Paul Stamets and the research of um, Fungi Perfecti, fungi.com. And just as a light relief for those people who are really into it, um, look up The Decomposing Composers by Monty Python on YouTube, just for a little laugh. Okay, well, thanks a lot. I Actually, we've come to the end of this, and I just want to say thank you to everyone who joined us, and also, of course, to Daniel and Ellie. Thank you so much, and it's been real inspiration to talk to both of you about this, and we could go on for, for hours, I'm sure, and we can, because we can have the meetup afterwards, and so this is the end of this part, but we'll have a bit more of an informal conversation with the rest of the people here online now. So thanks again, everyone, and uh, see you next month. Thanks for listening. Would you like to attend one of our online meetups? Go to bluecity.nl slash howtobiodesign. If you're looking for more bio tips and tricks, join a community on biofabforum.org. How to Buy Design was realized with funding from Creative Industries Fund NL and edited by Puree Productions. Special thanks to our network partners, Rotterdam University of Applied Science, Willem de Kooning Academy, and to our international network partners, Glimpse.bio from Belgium, and the US-based Biodesign Challenge team. Hope to meet you in our next episode.